Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, the podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm David. I'm Monica. Today, we're going to be continuing our discussion of costuming in films with the 1954 Stanley Donnan film, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I'm a lonesome poor cat. The year is 1850. Adam Pontipi, a frontiersman of sorts living in the Oregon Territory, rides into town one day to trade for supplies and find a wife. He evaluates the town's women and settles on Millie, a spunky woman who is constantly busy serving the men of the town at a local tavern. He proposes to her almost immediately, and she agrees. The two get married, and she rides with him back to his cabin in the wilderness. When they arrive, she meets Adam's six brothers, who he had neglected to mention. Benjamin, Caleb, Daniel, Ephraim, and Frank, short for frankincense. The family is unkempt and filthy. Adam shows Millie the kitchen and tells her to ring the bell when supper is ready for the boys. She is at first dismayed, then sets about cleaning the kitchen and cooking. That night, Adam goes to the bedroom and finds Millie who is angry with him for his deception and his expectation that she be a servant. She refuses to share a bed with him. Adam, not wanting his brothers to know he's been rejected by Millie, plans to sleep on a tree branch outside their bedroom window. Millie doesn't want him to sleep outside and lets him in the bedroom. The next morning, Millie goes about taming the brothers, doing their laundry and forcing them to shave. After they've cleaned up, Millie comments on how handsome they are and sings them a song, telling them how to woo women. Millie, Adam, and the newly tamed brothers dress up and go to a barn raising, where the brothers meet and dance with women, competing against the other men there for their affection. During the barn raising, the townsmen sabotage the brothers, who refuse to fight back at Millie's urging, despite Adam accusing them of cowardice. When one of the townsmen hits Adam... The brothers fight back, destroying the half-finished barn and humiliating Millie. Winter comes, and the boys go about their chores, pining for the women they met at the barn raising. When Caleb tells Millie he plans to leave the farm after the winter, she goes to Adam and asks him to speak to Caleb. Adam finds all his brothers in the barn, depressed and lonely. He tells them the story of the, quote, Sabin women, which is based upon the ancient Roman myth, the rape of the Sabine women, and instructs them to go into town and kidnap the women they pine for, along with the town parson, so they can get married. The brothers do so and are chased by the townspeople, but are able to escape when an avalanche blocks the trail behind them. Millie, shocked by Adam's behavior, comforts the women and takes them into the house, banishing the men from the house. Adam, angry at Millie, goes to spend the rest of the winter in a more remote, tinier cabin. The women spend the winter months throwing snowballs at their captors, but eventually warm to them comes springtime. Gideon eventually goes to bring Adam back to the house, telling him that Millie was pregnant and gave birth. Adam doesn't believe him and refuses to go back with Gideon, but arrives later that night. Adam resolves to return the women to the town, to the objection of the brothers and the women themselves. At the same time, the townspeople arrive at the cabin to rescue the women, the mountain path having cleared. The townspeople plan to hang the brothers, but the women all claim that Millie's baby is their own. 
As a result, the townspeople hold a shotgun wedding to preserve the women's honor, and the brothers are all married to their respective partners. Okay, that is uh, quite quite the synopsis uh, for for an incredibly troubling film. Monica, I guess what are your general thoughts about this film, and kind of what what do you think about classic Hollywood musicals of this time? Well, when I was watching this movie for the first two-thirds or something, I was thinking, is this the whitest movie I have ever seen? (laughs) And then for the rest of the film, I began to think, is this the most misogynist movie I have ever seen? As far as uh, classic Hollywood musicals, there are some I like, such as Carousel or Singing in the Rain, but it's very case-by-case for me. And something I might get into a little more later is that I think for a lot of people, their enjoyment of a musical that they are watching will depend very much on whether they're already familiar with the music. So in my experience, that's impacted a lot, whether I enjoy a musical. So earlier when you were saying you were wondering if this is the most misogynistic film you've ever seen, uh, it certainly has to be up there, right? We'll get into this later. But just first off, I have to say, like, you expect a degree of misogyny from basically any classic Hollywood film. Not to excuse it, but I think that's, you know, it's so common. Uh, But this is still, even with that expectation, this is shocking. But anyway, we will uh, kind of develop our thoughts on that a little bit more later. Let's talk a little bit about the production. The director, Stanley Donnan, he, first off, he grew up uh, going to the movie theaters uh, really, really frequently. Apparently, he was a victim of anti-Semitic bullying when he was a kid. And so he would kind of seek refuge at the movies. And I think uh, this kind of goes in line with musicals, which oftentimes tend tend to be very, very escapist in nature. So one of the films he was a big fan of was the pre-code 1933 Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers film Flying Down to Rio, and he specifically said that he, in an interview, and this this may be hyperbole, but in an interview, he said he went and saw that movie 30 or 40 times, uh, specifically because he could just go into that world for, you know, 90, 90 minutes or however long it is. So he went on, he mostly worked on comedies and musicals. He is perhaps most notable for his relationship with Gene Kelly. So early on, he did one year of college and then gave up on it and decided to go to New York to dance because he had, um, in high school, he had been training with dancing, um, uh, Donnan, that is. And so when he was in New York, he was cast uh, repeatedly in in choruses for Broadway musicals, and that's how he met Gene Kelly. And so the the two became friends, and Kelly brought uh, Donnan on to help choreograph portions of the, I believe, 1944 film Cover Girl. I've seen that. Have you? Did you like mm-hmm. it? It was okay. Okay. They so I have not seen that movie. Uh, but they're one of the sections that Donnan choreographed along with Gene Kelly. Uh, Gene Kelly is walking down the street and sees his reflection in some store windows, and the reflection kind of pops out, and he dances with it. And they actually they did this. The director Charles Vidor had said that like they couldn't do it, and so he, the director of the film, actually had no no part in that particular sequence. Um, but I did look up the the YouTube video for it, and I thought that was a really remarkable dance scene. Uh, do you do you remember that at all? Not super well. <laughs> okay. 
Well, I would recommend checking it out on YouTube. Uh, I was really impressed by it. You know what it might be? Sorry, not to get us off track. Uh, what it might be, too, is I watched this movie a couple years ago, probably. And it was before we started the podcast. And I'm not a person with any kind of expertise in cinema. So I, maybe I would appreciate it more if I watched it now um, after having all these conversations we've had where I realize when c- certain instances in film are a technological achievement. Oh, sure. Well, I think even um, with that particular sequence, uh, I think I wouldn't have appreciated it as much had I not done this specific research. So that, you know, I think that plays a part in it. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention was that the uh, the musical that Donnan and Kelly met on was uh, Pal Joey, uh, which I don't I don't actually know, but was apparently a, a fairly popular musical back in the day. Uh, another thing they worked on together uh, was Anchors Away, which is famous for uh, Gene Kelly dancing with, uh, is it Tom or Jerry? The mouse of that duo. Jerry. Jerry? Mm-hmm. Because How- Tom is like a tomcat. Oh, right. Originally, they wanted to use Disney characters for it. I think specifically Mickey Mouse. Um, but Disney was actually in the process of making uh, the Three Caballeros, a film that we previously covered, which includes sections of um, a live action and animated characters like dancing together. So Disney didn't want to uh, work on it with them. Donnan and Kelly's most famous collaboration is probably Singing in the Rain, which I think, you know, aside from maybe The Sound of Music is one of the most famous uh, musicals ever made, which I think is still... Great. I saw it a couple of years ago, and um, I'm not super, super into musicals, but I really love that movie. As kind of a side note, in later years, uh, Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan, their relationship kind of soured. Gene Kelly started taking pot shots at Donnan and saying that he didn't really, like he wasn't that creatively important in their projects. And then uh, Donnan, in a couple of interviews, started attacking Gene Kelly, so that that relationship kind of fell apart. I did want to mention that Donnan seemed to be of the opinion that Seven Brides was not a very good movie. He wanted to do on-location shooting for big chunks of it, uh, which to me just sounds insane. I have no idea how you shoot this movie outside of a studio, but that's what he wanted to do. MGM insisted on doing it in a studio. And in an interview, he said that he he feels like... um, particularly the barn-raising scene looks, quote, very phony. I gotta say, maybe if they had done some kind of like halfway, like done part, if they'd been able to do some of the the shooting on location and then the the more difficult parts they could have done on that soundstage, I really feel like, is it a wasted opportunity just to being able to take advantage of the natural beauty in Oregon would have been such a benefit to the film um, in a film that I feel like from my viewing had very few redeeming qualities. I I don't think it is ever redeemed, um, but I think from a technical perspective, it's really astounding. And um, this this is kind of just my opinion, but I really loved the sets and the matte paintings that they used to kind of create the backgrounds. I thought they were very impressive. The choreographer on this film was Michael Kidd. Uh, who is perhaps most famous for his, being one of the earlier practitioners of the integrated musical, uh, which was spearheaded by Fred Astaire. So basically an integrated musical was a musical in which the musical sections were used to further the plot 
or further character development. Whereas uh, musicals before this, a lot of times what they would do was set a, a film around a character who is, say, a performer on Broadway. And so all the musical sections you get the character is literally performing on Broadway, right? Whereas here, it, it becomes an organic part of the storytelling. Uh, Michael Kidd, he was heavily inspired by Charlie Chaplin, which I think is very interesting in that that idea of using your your body as a performative instrument is really interesting and, and done to, to great effect here. A lot of the, the dance sequences uh, are very unique because they're kind of choreographing around this idea that the brothers are these rough and tumble characters the studio kind of had reservations about this idea like we really expect outdoorsmen to suddenly pop up and sing so we can see a lot of the dance moves like be choreographed around the idea of of them kind of being uh you know quote unquote masculine and more physically forceful right as opposed to graceful and also, Kid uh, Kid did work a lot on Broadway as well, and won I believe uh, five Tonys. Uh, so he's he's certainly a, a big name in choreography. Let's move right along to the cast. Uh, so first off, we have our two principals playing Adam and Millie are Howard Keel and Jane Powell. So Howard Keel was actually not a trained dancer and was primarily sought out for his singing. Uh, and I think if you watch the film, he has this like, really beautiful, deep, deep baritone voice. But he does almost no dancing, perhaps no dancing. I remember watching it and kind of thinking like, why isn't he, everyone's dancing. He's not dancing. Um, <laughs> so that wasn't one of the reasons they got Keel on the film, but uh, his voice was certainly an asset. Powell, however, was a trained dancer and singer um, and she had appeared in, in several musicals before. So she was kind of the uh, uh, triple threat. All of the brothers, except for two, were trained dancers. The two who weren't trained dancers were Russ Tamblin and Jeff Richards, uh, who were both MGM contract holders. Um, so we've talked about the star system before and the idea of actors being on contract to specific studios for extended periods of time. This is another part of that is that the studio will go to a movie that's in production and like, well, we have these people on contract. We think they would be good, you know. Why don't you put them in in the movie? Jeff Richards, uh, you can you can kind of tell that he's perhaps not super well suited because he doesn't really do a lot of dancing, and he kind of stays mostly in the background. Uh, Russ Tamblin, however, who plays Gideon, he was not a professional dancer, but he was a trained gymnast. And so there are a lot of sections, particularly during the barn raising, where they're putting him front and center and showing him do these these pretty incredible physical feats. Michael Kidd was able to use his, his talents there um, to kind of bring some interesting color to the sequences. Also, just a side note, uh, because... As you know by now, I'm a big David Lynch fan. Russ Tamblin is Dr. Jacoby in uh, Twin Peaks, a series, which uh, blew my mind. The brides, I believe, were all trained dancers and had... Um, I know there were, there were some Tony w winners among them, so they were really you know, primed and ready for this kind of part. Um, one of them was Catwoman. One of them was Catwoman? Yeah. No kidding. Uh, oh. Sorry, I forgot her name. What's her name? 60s Catwoman. Julie Newmar was one of them? Yeah, yeah. 
I totally miss that. So I do, I, I do also want to say that I apologize for not going into more detail on the brides here, but they are given almost no character throughout the film. And it's also frankly, very hard to distinguish them. Monica, what performances stuck, stuck out to you from, from this film? I think you're, you're right about Howard Keel's voice being very impressive. And also the thing that was weird to me was that I, I thought that Jane Powell, I thought somebody else was singing for her because her speaking and singing voices seem so different. Did, did it strike you that way at all? Uh, not, I mean, I think the, the quality varied a little bit because the, you know, the singing is dubbed over, but it didn't, it seemed like her to me. Um, was the dialogue not dubbed over? Well, it uh, it is, but like usually if they're di- dubbing over dialogue versus singing, like those will be different recording environments. Oh, okay. Well, something about her compared to other people, it seem they seem very different. But in any case, she has a great voice. I think I was really focused on Gideon Russ Tamblin just because, like, I was you know I spent half the movie like that's Doctor Jacoby. What you know. <laughs> 50, 40 years younger. Anyway, so I was really impressed by him. Uh, but one portion of the the film, one aspect of the film that we will be talking about in more depth later, but like kind of performance wise as actors, like I did not care about a single person in this movie um, other than possibly like feeling terrible for for millie and the rest of the brides but like i would i was not inspired to empathize with anybody did you have any were there any characters that struck you in any particular way i kind of like gideon he was kind of cute and like you know he was the youngest one and but yeah overall i agree okay well let's talk a little bit bit about kind of the technical elements of this so first off i want to mention that the cinematographer for this film george folsey he wrote uh an article about shooting it that appears in american cinematographer it's a very short read we'll have it uh in the show notes i strongly recommend reading that even if you don't watch the movie because i think there's a lot of really great information here and if uh if there is any redemptive quality to this film, it is in kind of these technical elements. So first off, the film was shot simultaneously in both CinemaScope and widescreen. So those are two different aspect ratios. CinemaScope is 255 to 1, and widescreen is 175 to 1. Uh, so CinemaScope is just like an extra, extra wide, like extremely letterbox format. It's it's hard to say precisely, but I don't believe MGM ever wound up releasing the widescreen format or at least releasing it in theaters. It's apparently available on DVD, possibly Blu-ray now, but the, the predominant version of the film is the CinemaScope version. But MGM did tell them that they had to shoot in both because they were concerned that they would have problems with distribution for theaters who were not equipped to screen CinemaScope, which was a, it's kind of a peculiar thing because CinemaScope, there are certain really widescreen formats that you need particular equipment to screen, but CinemaScope um, actually just needed like a certain adapter and most projectors would already be able to show it just with this like added piece as opposed to a format that needed its, you know, its own particular 
projector. So it's hard to say what exactly MGM was thinking in that moment, but that's kind of why they had this technical hurdle of having to shoot every scene with two different cam cameras at once. Oh, so that was going to be my question. So the way they did it was every time they do a take, two cameras are filming. Yeah. And um, again, the version, I think probably the version you saw, the version I saw was uh, entirely the cinema scope. Um, but another to think of while they were shooting this, if you have to shoot in two different aspect ratios simultaneously, that changes the framing and changes what appears on screen, which makes it very, very difficult, especially in something with big choreographed numbers. It, it's it's very difficult to manage a high quality output in both formats. That's just it boggles my mind managing that. But kind of getting into some of this choreography, so uh, the thing this film is most famous for, uh, the barn-raising sequence, particularly because there are so many key characters on screen at once. The cinematographer Folsey, in his article, he talks about how it was difficult because you had up to 20 principals on screen at the same time. Because if you have cinemascope, if you have a aspect ratio that wide, you can capture everyone. But it becomes a lighting challenge because you're having to get everyone like well seen in attractive lighting and whatnot. The barn raising scene, I think he, he said they needed about 250,000 watts of lighting on set. Uh, and, and I believe he, he said it got up to like 98 degrees Fahrenheit in there uh, while they oh, were Lord. shooting. So that when you're watching these people do these acrobatics, like there is another degree of suffering on top of that. So if you're if you're sh shooting a movie with a lot of dance m numbers and whatever, and say you don't have all these principles, say you have like a couple um, principles and then you have a whole bunch of backup dancers. Is this not an issue because they don't need to have good lighting for all the people? Yeah, well, it changes um, It changes how you light. Typically, when you're lighting, you're really focusing on how you're handling your human subjects. And so if there are fewer of them, you need fewer uh, key lights and fills and backlights, right? Because I've, I've talked about this before on the podcast, uh, and I don't know that they use three-point lighting here, almost certainly not, but three-point lighting traditionally is the key light, which is your principal source of light, the fill light, which fills in the shadows created by the key light, and then the backlight, which creates kind of a line around the human figure to make them stand out from the background. So think about trying to achieve all of those things for 20 different people on screen at once, right? That was one of the big challenges. Uh, another challenge is that with the CinemaScope, when they were shooting interiors with a few, only a few characters, um, I thought, uh, particularly the scene with Adam and Millie in the bedroom, you have this incredibly wide screen and there are only two people on it. And so Folsey was talking about how difficult lighting that is because you start feeling like, oh, well, you've got your two characters who are lit. Everything else is a little bit darker. And it's all it's kind of like they're sitting in this really wide void, which is not necessarily the aesthetic you want. They had to use a lot of um, kickers, which was a term he used I wasn't familiar with, but I believe that's a, a certain type of fill light and reflectors to kind of diffuse light throughout all of these sets to make to make the sets themselves seem very vibrant. So it didn't feel, again, like two principles and just like an empty void. I was wondering what you noticed about the song and dance numbers visually, and then also maybe the sections of the film that weren't 
songs. Was there anything that stood out to you uh, kind of in that department? I thought everything was very colorful, especially in terms of the guys' different shirts, the women's dresses. Um, They also utilized different props when they were dancing, like the axes, which looked super dangerous. But um, I know maybe it was in your outline or somewhere I read that that was seen as very innovative in terms of the kind of props you use for dance. Um, I also noticed, and I know you're going to talk more about costuming later, but there was the one dance sequence with the women in their underwear. Um, and like for people who haven't seen this movie, this is 18, 1850s? 1850s. 1850s women's underwear. So it's not like risque or anything, right? Um, but that was interesting, right? Because by the, the, the film takes place in the 1850s, but by the 1950s, it was just kind of like those are cute outfits that they could use or whatever. And then the soundstage look stuck out to me, which um, we've already discussed. Um, but the fact that these were on sets and I was disappointed that they weren't actually up in the mountains. <laughs> right. I guess um, I guess we should say, I believe um, when Adam's going into town and they reuse this, uh, this scenery uh, two or three more times in the film, I, I didn't see anything about this, but there's what looks to be a composite shot. So we have Adam kind of on the horse-drawn carriage and we see the mountains and we see the background and we see the stream. And so uh, when I say composite shot, I mean, it looks to me like they layered multiple elements. So they would have gotten shots of perhaps the actual on location natural scenery and combined it with a matte painting and then combined it with a separate shot of him like riding the carriage to to create the final effect which i thought was actually quite beautiful All right, so let's get into the topic of the month with the costuming of this film. Uh, So first off, the costume designer here was Walter Plunkett, who shared an Oscar with two other other costume designers for the Gene Kelly 1952 film An American in Paris. Other notable work he's done is uh, Gone with the Wind, as well as Singing in the Rain, uh, which was also a Stanley Donnan film. Most notably, I think he was the head of RKO's costume department, for a period. And from what I understand, he really kind of uh, uh, built that from the ground up and and gained a good reputation for the studio because of his work. So let's get right into the designs. I think uh, uh, the most standout element of the costuming work is during the barn raising scene, which is, which is arguably this film's uh, kind of most important sequence. First off, the brides and the brothers are all very clearly color coded. Whereas the, the, townsfolk are kind of in in what you could i suppose call more accurate garb from the 1850s the brides and the brothers have a very uh kind of flamboyant loud colors i think to you know to distinguish them from the rest of the cast also you know i would argue partially because we don't really get a good sense of too many of their 
personalities or characters. So we kind of need this visual signaling to keep us clued in on who we're really supposed to be following. Their costuming is pretty anachronistic, uh, particularly the brides. A couple of them have this kind of checkered dress pattern that wasn't really a thing back in 1850 and seems to me, I'm no expert, but seems to me very much a, a from the 1950s, right? Uh I, I've i seen people kind of compare some of these dresses to looking like a tablecloth. <laughs> um, so that not, you know, no offense, no offense intended towards Plunkett, but like that's kind of the aesthetic we're looking at. Of note, part of the anachronism is the bright colors. Uh, so William Henry Perkin, who is a British chemist, uh, is famous because he discovered a synthetic dye which led to kind of the the prevalence of colorful clothing because, you know, before that, dyes were were obviously not super common back in the day. So you had a lot of like darker tones for for clothing. Um, and Perkin, I believe his his discovery wouldn't have happened until the late 1850s. Um, and then certainly wouldn't have, have gained traction until a little bit after that. So that's pretty anachronistic here. I think part of it, too, is that since this was pre-synthetic dyes, they could still dye their clothing, but they had to use natural dyes. And natural dyes are a lot more difficult to produce in mass quantities. Like the reason that European royals wore purple is because purple was such an expensive dye to acquire. Um, because they they couldn't make it synthetically, so obviously, like r- like normal people or rural people would probably have a lot fewer um, dyed garments. Another another element of the film that is uh, pretty anachronistic is uh, men's facial hair. So at the beginning of the film, Adam has this uh, big bushy beard that he shaves before he proposes to Millie. Uh, and then when they arrive back at his cabin, all of his brothers also have big bushy beards and it makes it impossible to distinguish any of them. They all look like the same person. <laughs> and they all have uh, red hair, too. Oh, they, were they all natural redheads? No, right? I, I don't actually know. Probably, right? I mean, I thought they're because, you know, if you get dyed red hair, it doesn't look like natural red hair. And I thought their hair all looked kind of naturally red. Right. That's what I figured. Like, would they have um, would they have expended resources to to dye their hair and kind of what I guess to what end? I don't but really like, know. And red hair is such an uncommon color hair to have. Maybe it's like human hair wigs. That maybe. Um, I you know I wonder if that was part of the casting process. <laughs> it made it really easy to weed out the people they didn't need. <laughs> they get down to like a collection of just like 50 guys. It's like, all right, you guys are in. All right, looking at each other. It's out. like gingers. <laughs> also, the, the brothers with their beards, uh, they're forced to shave by, by Millie, um, who once, they, once they're clean shaven, she says how handsome they are. Um, and this uh, this is also pretty anachronistic because uh, beards were actually pretty pretty common and pretty popular uh, in the states at that time um, in the from the 1850s until I think the the latter part of that century. Um, so I think it would have been unusual for for someone to step in and say, "Oh, you would be so much more handsome if you if you like shaved your beard," you know. It would be a little bit 
like saying, I mean, this is maybe changing, but it would be a little bit like being in America and saying to a man today, you'd look so much better with long hair. Long hair is not an option for most people, culturally right. speaking. Right, right. It would be it would be unusual, certainly. And especially the way um the way Millie is is coded uh as as kind of wanting things to be proper uh that's kind of you know that's the opposite of what uh what i suppose the 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 popular fashion would have been at the time so monica i was wondering if um if you noticed anything in particular about the costuming or or makeup and you know we talk about this with period pieces where they're about their period they're set in but they're just as much about the period they're made in uh was there anything distinctly 1950s about the fashion in this in this film? A hundred percent. I'm going to talk about the costumes and then I'm going to talk about the makeup as well a little bit. You can see that the women are obviously wearing girdles. Um, and if you don't know what a girdle is, I mean, most people know that a corset is something that women wore. And it was until maybe about the World War One era, and it was meant to shape their waist, their midsection. And then those fell out of fashion uh, during around World War One. Um, but they were eventually replaced with girdles, which really serve a similar function. And girdles were an essential part of 1950s women's wear. When you wear a corset, you put it on with hooks or you lace them. A lot of people probably know that famous scene from Gone with the Wind. Uh, that's a corset, but girdles would be rolled on. So you would kind of like step into it and pull it onto yourself. And they use like elastic and that kind of thing. Um, and girdles were super, super important to the 1950s uh, new look. We're going to talk about more about that in our Cinderella episode, which will be out next. Um, but in essence, a big part of the new look was having a very small waist compared to a very large skirt. And the large skirt would accentuate the small waist. And then the girdle also helped to make the waist look small. Would this have been kind of the origins of we talk about like the hourglass figure for women? Is this kind of where we can trace it back to? I don't think it's the origin of it, but the hourglass figure is just one that comes in and out of fashion in various cultures at various points in history. And the 1950s just happened to be one of those times. And the, the girdle was the thing that they, one of the things they used to achieve it. So the, the funny thing is, I guess, that the, the new look was based a little bit on the fashion of the Belle Epoque in France, which was from the 1870s until, again, like just before World War I. And at that time, uh, the very, very small waist was also very in vogue. And so when Christian Dior um, kind of came up with the new look, that's what he was looking at. Of course, this film is set in the 1850s. And in the 1850s, so this would be earlier than the Belle Epoque, but in the 1850s, women still would have worn corsets. So in a way, wearing a girdle could maybe kind of mimic the fashions that women wore in the 1850s. The only issue is that rural women, the kind that we see in this movie, would not have worn corsets except probably on Sundays because rural women tended to work and wearing a very restrictive undergarment like that would not be conducive to you know, working on a farm or taking care of the cows or whatever the case may be. So so being able to see the women's waist 
waist shaped in a way that made it very clear they were wearing a girdle and those big flouncy skirts that's that's very 1950s um and maybe with like a faint echo of a, a kind of pseudo 1850s costume i did want to talk just briefly about the makeup because the women they're they're wearing a uh, pretty minimal eye makeup but very bright lipstick and of course like uh presumably foundation and powder and all those other things um in the united states women as far as i know didn't really wear makeup unless they were actresses or you know sex workers or something like that that didn't change until the 1920s so if you're familiar with the TV show Downton Abbey, that show begins in the 19-teens. And in England as well, women also didn't wear makeup until the 20s. So at the beginning of that show, for those actresses, they wanted to make it look very realistic. So they didn't want to have them wearing lipstick and mascara and all these things. But since they were actresses, they still want to like cover up blemishes and make them look as good as possible. So they would actually use, they would actually spray the makeup on them because it gives a lot more natural coverage. So if you watch Downton Abbey in those early seasons, they don't look like they're wearing makeup, um, but they are. But that was to, to be authentic to the time. Do you remember that episode of The Simpsons where Homer's trying to invent <laughs> things and he's got the makeup shotgun? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You said to spray the makeup on. That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, it's literally, I mean, it doesn't include like the lipstick and stuff, but it's just like the foundation rather than putting it on with your fingers or a sponge, you just close your eyes and they go. <laughs> That's so wild. Well, so let's talk a little bit about the themes here and this film as kind of being an issue of, of uh, form and, and function. So first off, I just want to say that um, as, as usual when we're covering these films, uh, I'll watch the film first before doing any research. And then once I finish it, I'll kind of look up articles and kind of look up information. And when I watched this, I hated it. I hated this movie so much. It struck me as being so, so gross. Uh, and then I started doing the research and particularly into the visual design and how they had to work around CinemaScope and, and how they had to handle the lighting and everything. And then I went back and watched the barn raising scene as well as a, a couple of the other musical numbers. And I was just like entranced, right? Just totally blown away by the craft here. Um, and I think that is kind of where this movie sits it's uh, referenced very frequently as being a very important musical and i think usually when people say that they're talking about the technical achievement here which is really undeniable but i think in some ways that makes us more insidious and upsetting uh so first off we have the blatant misogyny it's really, I mean, it's really all over this film. I think uh, uh, when I was watching it, I think I was thinking that it reads very much like the fantasy that a man in the 1950s would have about the kind of proverbial good old days, right? Where, you know, men can kind of just go up to the woman that they select and that's that, right? This kind of absolute power. The misogynistic elements in this film, to to spell them out, uh, first off, I, th I think the 
perhaps most notable is the kidnapping of brides uh, when the brothers go in and and grab the women that they are interested in and they have this jolly old song about doing it and they're laughing about the idea that these women would be sobbing the you know the sobbing women right who are who are taken from their homes uh, which is is very I mean it's very hard to watch it's very upsetting uh, and then we also have, you know, kind of the classic, like the Stockholm syndrome of the brides who who become attached to their captors, uh, who, you know, begin reciprocating this affection, although it's, you know, obviously there can be no consent they were they were kidnapped and then also, you know, primarily with Millie, this idea that she's brought in to be a servant. And she at first objects and then is kind of broken down and says she loves, you know, the big house and the big family and all of these things. Uh, and so it kind of, you know, it boils down to to a sense of the entire film being being the embodiment of the kind of boys will be boys rape culture. We get a lot of shots where we're supposed to understand, we're supposed to be empathetic towards the men, right? We have Millie telling them like, oh, you want a woman? Here's what you do. And we have the song they're singing while they're working out on the farm uh, in the middle of winter about how lonely they are. There's so much focus on on what they're thinking when they're, f- what they're feeling. And the brides get almost no characterization there's almost no depth you know as much as the brothers are kind of interchangeable the brides far more so uh they they basically don't have personality and they really don't ever buy into the relationship the man decides what woman he wants and the woman eventually agrees to it right that's how relationships in this film work uh it's very i mean it's very, very, very upsetting. But like one element also that I think is not as abundantly clear is the politics of Native Americans and their role or perhaps lack of role of this film. So first off, for a very, very brief history lesson, in the 1830s, this film, the start of the film is 1850, I believe a year passes, so we're talking 1850, 1851. In the 1830s, we see the Oregon Trail leading to increased migration of whites into the Pacific Northwest region of the United States. And kind of as was kind of the common common story, I suppose, is that at first some of this migration seemed relatively peaceful, but quickly turned violent and genocidal. In 1850, we have the Oregon Land, um, pardon, the Oregon Donation Land Act, in which the government gave a total of 2.8 million acres to whites who were sit- settling in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, This act, of course, made no accommodation for indigenous peoples who were already living there. There was no sense that you have to respect people, you know, people who are literally living on the land already. It was just given to white people. And with this, we see an increase in rate uh, in the rates of, of violence, particularly white violence perpetrated against Native Americans. And so to bring this into the world of the film, first off, it's set in 1850. So about 105, 104 years before the film itself. 
And I'd mentioned earlier about it kind of being like, oh, the man, you know, back when things were simpler, the man's kind of ideal world. I think it that works here as well. Because what we see is in the Oregon Territory, an exclusively white cast uh, who, who live in this land and they're the only ones here. And Adam, who, who is said to, you know, live in the wilderness, live out, that wilderness is portrayed as being empty and desolate. And Millie, during the film, she expresses a desire for like having, you know, Adam and I could have children and then your other brothers could have children and we would have a great big family and these big holidays and everything. And this, you know, this kind of colonial attitude, right? Just expanding further and further and, and, and reproducing and expanding on this land that they are pretending is totally empty, which it clearly was not. As much as it is a representation of misogyny, I think it is also a representation of manifest destiny. And so I think it, you know, all of these things bundled together make make this this viewing, I think, very nightmarish. It's it's a very difficult film to view. It's a very difficult film to talk about. Monica, how did like how did these elements impact your viewing of it? It was tough because I felt like, as I said earlier, there were few redeeming elements that I could appreciate, not knowing myself, the technical aspects, and also, like I said earlier, not already being familiar with the music. I can draw a comparison with the musical Carousel, which... I like a lot, which is also problematic because it contains elements of domestic violence. But the difference is, number one, that when I saw the film Carousel, I already knew all the music, so I could enjoy it on that level. And by the way, if you're not familiar, it it's almost kind of a similar idea. It takes place, I think, a little bit later, and it's in Maine, I believe, in the late 19th century. But it's, again, it's like a 1950s does 19th century musical. But the other issue is that with Carousel, even though there were ish- like serious, like, oh, disturbing attitudes about domestic violence, it the whole story didn't really revolve around that. But in this movie, the entire story is about kidnapping these women and taking them away everything that you uh, just explained. So it make if you don't have anything else already in the movie that you're enjoying, it makes it hard for you to get away from these annoying plot points. Well, so when I was, um, when I was watching this, honestly, I felt kind of like the world's biggest hypocrite because I kept thinking back to the, um, the two part episode we did on Alfred Hitchcock's psycho, um, and in there, if you haven't listened to it, um, you can go check out our, our thoughts in more detail there. But we talked a lot about Alfred Hitchcock's misogyny and kind of the idea of, of this film and later films revolving around punishment of women. And I was sitting here watching Seven Brides and thinking like, well, why is it that I was able to watch Psycho and be engrossed and like totally, totally engrossed in the craft and engrossed in the characters? And then here I just, you know, I was just like totally disgusted. And I think part of it, and this is not, I don't say this to try and absolve Psycho of of its egregious misogyny, but like in Psycho, 
we got a, a pretty intense portrayal of Marion Crane as a character, as a human being. You felt like you could see what she was seeing, relate to her, relate to her desires and what she was planning. Um, even if those desires did, you know, quite stereotypically revolve around a man, I still felt like I could get to know that character. Whereas here, this movie really is like a large group of men cackling about the women they conquer. And that's, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to, to see, see much around that. I was wondering if you knew anything about, I believe it's a short story that this movie was based on. I haven't read that story. Um, the short story, which was um, The Sabin Women. By um, Stephen Vincent Benet. Mm-hmm. Like, I was kind of wondering when, because I can't find it on Wikipedia, when the story was first written. Here, oh, 1938. I see. It, it, this whole, like, the movie really does strike me as so old-fashioned, even for 1954. Um. And I guess it seems kind of like it makes sense that they would just lift this story and and put it into their movie. And even if some people's attitudes could have been more progressive, it, nobody was going to criticize if you just adapted a, a story that was older anyway. May, I mean, maybe. So I wasn't able to find any specific information. I think this this film was relatively well received critically. But I think there was some controversy over it, even at the time. And I think now this is, you know, people will talk about it very glowingly over how it was shot. But I think that's part, you know, that's a big part of this legacy. Because I saw, you know, in a couple of places, this being referred to as like the most misogynistic film ever made. So I know you had mentioned Carousel before. I was wondering if there was if there was anything else you could think of that you thought was perhaps a technical or a stylistic marvel that was really uh, quite atrocious politically in, in kind of a, a similar way. I mean, you could probably reference almost any movie that we've talked about in this podcast. They probably all have problems to a greater or a lesser degree. I know that we have discussed and you have seen Birth of a Nation, which is incredibly important from a technical standpoint uh, in filmmaking, but is um but helped revitalize the KKK. I, I did want to mention that um, Birth of a Nation, um, D.W. Griffith is a very important filmmaker. Uh, we've talked about him on this podcast before with his his kind of like narrative extended approach and like editing and whatnot. Uh, but I do think that the um, the kind of building up of Birth of a Nation as being like this incredibly important film is is pretty overblown. And possibly actually the result of kind of like conservative teaching and, and pushing again, like con- conservative racist nonsense as being more, more important than it was uh, because it was actually a response to these epic films that were being made in Italy already. Um, mm. One of the most famous ones being uh, Cabiria from 1914, which was directed by Giovanni uh, Pastrone. Birth of a Nation was kind of D.W. Griffith's response to that with a really healthy heaping of horrifying genocidal racism. But yeah, so uh, it's very tricky talking about films like this because you have to kind of decide, like, I don't know how fruitful it is to go to the past or films made in the past 
and just, you know, create a podcast for an hour talking about how horrible it is because I, I don't, uh, I well, like, it's kind of like, what do you expect to find in the past? Like, right, <laughs> right, right. I mean, I think this is, this is really exceptionally terrible, but like, as far as, you know, what's kind of, what's the purpose of that discussion? If we're going to do that, we may as well talk about things now. While I was doing the research for this, I was kind of trying to wrap my mind around like, well, what is kind of the benefit of talking about this? And I think perhaps I, I, I am not one to to kind of speak about media being specifically dangerous um because i think that's a that's a very simple criticism but i think especially with with a musical like this having such a repugnant message so clearly portrayed in in a very like utopian way uh i think it's something that we have to be conscious of and i think it's actually very important to talk about the specific mechanism of it right not just to say oh it's bad but like it's important to talk about why it's bad and why these technical achievements kind of in some ways make it worse because it's something that like is astounding from a technical level that we will talk about from that achievement and so we are also in some ways stuck with its message and it makes it makes it kind of more important to emphasize how bad this message is you know well, I guess uh, we're getting to about the end of our time on this. Monica, did you have any any final thoughts on this film? I don't, like, when I say, like, I couldn't find any redeeming value in this movie, I don't, by saying that, I don't want to, like, make myself seem like I'm exceptional and noble for not caring for a movie that has a really bad message. It's more just, like I said, I didn't have any pre-existing appreciation for the music, so the bad very much outweighed the good. And there's probably other stuff that I really, really like that has a lot of bad politics. It's not like I think badly of people who maybe like this movie. And I also think too, because I was so confused, like given my reaction, when I looked online at how positive the reviews were, I was like, are you kidding? (laughs) Um, But you know, besides the people who maybe have a lot of knowledge and maybe appreciate the movie for its technical achievements. Like, I think there could also be a lot of people who saw this movie, you know, when they were kids, and maybe the bad messaging just didn't strike them the way it strikes us seeing it as adults, and they just came away appreciating all the, you know, colorful costumes and the dancing, and they have nostalgia tied to it. Yeah, I think that's a very important point you bring up, that, like I don't I don't think it's especially fruitful to find a piece of media or film that you find repugnant and then scream to all the people who enjoy it that like well you're monsters you're part of the problem no I think uh, we all engage with uh, to use a overused term we all engage with media that is problematic um, and I do want to emphasize that for sure we are not trying to attack anyone who has fondness for this film but. I think we would be doing a tremendous disservice to analyze its history and its director and choreographer, cinematographer, costumer, and not talk about kind of the the nightmare here. And that's, I think, honestly, that's that's part of digesting material that is is politically bad, right? You can, you know, you can like whatever you want, but 
it's it's really important you acknowledge the problems with what it is that you do like you you have to you have to be able to do that critically i think also as a quick side note and normally i am not a big fan of review aggregators but that is a topic for another time uh, while I was doing the research for this movie, I did bump into the critics' consensus uh, little blurb that appears for this film on Rotten Tomatoes, and it is, quote, buoyed by crowd-pleasing tunes and charming performances, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers makes a successful transition from Broadway to screen that's sure to please the whole family. First off, I want to emphasize that I believe this was a film first, so it did not actually transition from Broadway. It went from film to Broadway, so that's incorrect. And please don't show your children this movie. Like, I just don't... Don't do this one. That about does it uh, for us today at Maybe Today Matinee. I would like to mention my sources. So first off... Uh, the article Broken Treaties, an Oral History Tracing Oregon's Native Population, written by Eric Kane and John Rossman, which appeared on Oregon Public Broadcasting's website. The article by the film cinematographer George Folsey, titled Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Simultaneous Production Shooting in Cinemascope and Widescreen, which appears on the American Cinematographer website. The interview with Stanley Donnan, conducted by Stephen Harvey, which appeared in Film Comment. Uh, the article Fred Astaire and the Integrated Musical, written by John Mueller, which appeared in Cinema Journal. And the review of the book Donnan Dancing on the Ceiling, written by Thomas J. Harris, which appeared in Literature Slash Film Quarterly. And finally, uh, the YouTube videos from Amanda Haley in her series The Ultimate Fashion History, which uh, Monica, you cited. Uh, if you're if you're really curious about a very detailed um, but easy to watch breakdown of fashion history. Just Google the ultimate fashion history on YouTube and you can get all kinds of information in cute videos. All right. Uh, you can find us at Mayday Matinee on Twitter, maybe today Matinee on Facebook and Instagram. Next week, we're going to be doing the 1950 Disney animated film Cinderella. I'm David. I'm Monica. And this has been Maybe Today Matinee. Wow.